We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning, everyone. This is a very special episode of The Scoop. Very early episode of The Scoop. <laughs> this is actually probably the earliest I've ever gone to the office. I got here at 7.45, Ryan. Joined by my colleague, Ryan Todd, and our very special guest, the CEO of BlockFi. They're a crypto, ether, Bitcoin lending company based almost down the street from us, Zach Prince. Thanks so much for joining us. Glad I could wake you up early, Frank. No, this is it's incredible. I'm, Feels I'm, good, right? I've got my coffee. I've got my energy. I've got Ryan Todd. <laughs> I'm very excited for the conversation today. So let's let's get started. When we first, I remember it's funny. The last time, the first time we met, it was also very early in the morning. We didn't really meet. We met digitally, but I was heading back from Cape Cod at about five o'clock in the morning. Got into a major fight with my ex girlfriend. Needed a distraction. Zach Prince pops up in my inbox about a 50 some odd million dollar fundraise. This was their Series A. And he said, We want to give you the scoop. Yeah, it was, it was, it was our first debt financing. No. What was it? It was a debt financing as opposed to a fundraise? No, but there was two million that was invested. There's in there's some equity too. Technically, we called that a seed extension, but yeah, it was two million. I think fifty million that they raised. For yeah, in lending capital. Exactly. The so, punchline is, I was a I was a Frankie Scoops fanboy on Twitter, and I'm like, how am I going to get Frank's attention? I could send him a note a week before the announcement. That's not that exciting. I'm going to ping him like the morning before it's going to hit the wire at nine a.m. and tell him if he gets on this, he can he can have a lead on it actually getting released publicly. And you just took it right. I had nothing else to do. It was like a three-hour bus ride. You're like, done. <laughs> so and Then 8, that a, 8 was, a.m. it was up on Business Insider. That must have been a year ago now. A lot's been going on. It was exactly a year ago. You've expanded into new assets. You've expanded into new businesses or lines of business. Uh, walk us through a little bit what, what the journey's been like over the past year. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been great. So, when we secured that that lending capital, we really started growing. And this is summer of 2018. So, we were growing uh, towards the end of the bear market. Um, but we were ramping up loan origination volume, ramping up uh, customers, growing the team. 
Uh, and then we launched a second product at the beginning of this year. Our strategy has always been to have a diversified set of products that we make available to um, a kind of niche customer base of, of cryptocurrency investors, which we think is going to be one of the more valuable customer segments that that exist uh, in the future. Um, and so we launched our second product in March of this year, which is uh, basically a, a crypto savings account. So you can deposit Bitcoin or Ether, earn interest on that, paid out monthly compounds, just like in, in traditional accounts of that nature. Uh, and that product um, really took off. Uh, we onboarded Thousands of customers, and you know, the first two weeks since launching, the rate of growth on that has continued to accelerate. We also now have tailwinds uh, for one of the first times from a you know macro crypto market perspective since since BlockFi has uh, been operational. So uh, we've seen a lot of organic growth, we've seen a lot of referral growth, and um, it's been great. And so we're going to continue down this path of launching new products that are relevant to. Uh, this customer segment that we target, and uh, it's really exciting. Talk what about, you, there was like literally a perfect time to release a interest on crypto paying account, like peak of the or bottom of the market, paying out interest. You have all these new customers; they're getting their Bitcoin or Ether paid back, and now that's worth a lot more if they've held it. Probably you've seen those customers completely onboarded and 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 staying with the product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've seen a couple of things. I think some of those customers have converted into also using our loan product, which they may or may not have known about ahead of time. Uh, they've also become kind of like brand advocates for us. So uh, I think we had a lot of brand equity that maybe we weren't capturing that much when all we did was loans because that product uh, isn't relevant to 100% of people that own crypto, it's maybe relevant to you know, 5-10% of people that own crypto. How did the client bases match up between those two products? The interest account is, is much bigger. So it, roughly 10% is what we're seeing right now. So out of every 100 people that are on the platform, uh, all 100 of them are interested in earning interest. Uh, and, and about 10 of them will you know, borrow money at, at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And how, do, how are the two connected, right? So are, are they... Like, are you are the funds sort of commingled, or are they separate in terms of? We we custody them at the same place, uh, but we have two different subsidiary entities, two separate uh, kind of holding accounts uh, for the different product lines, and then we do a lot of things to, um, from a customer experience perspective, let those two products interplay with each other. So, if you have an interest account with BlockFi, you might receive a message in your dashboard or in an email that says, did you know you could borrow up to this much money at this rate? And you can do it in two clicks and have the money in your account today. Um, and for someone that has a loan, especially as prices are appreciating, um, their loan becomes you know, very over-collateralized pretty quickly when you have you know, a 200%-ish gain in Bitcoin this year. And so we've, we've given our clients the ability to just auto-sweep uh, that over-collateralization in their loan into an interest account. Really cool. And uh, we'll, we'll be doing you know, more stuff like that over time. What's going on behind the scenes of the, of the savings account, right? Because obviously you guys are putting that money to work somehow. Crypto is already risky as it is. There's no types of insurances that we have in traditional markets like SIPC or FDIC. Um, how do clients know that their money's safe and is there transparency around what you guys are, are doing with it? 
Yeah, there's certainly transparency uh, in terms of the structure that we're using to generate that interest. And it's simply that we're lending Bitcoin and Ether in Bitcoin and Ether denominated transactions to institutional borrowers. Um, we did a you know kind of strategic uh, fundraise for four million dollars in December of last year with participants like Susquehanna, Fidelity, Acuna Capital, CMT, and we're you know we're we're uh, pretty strict around disclosing who we actually have relationships with and who we actually are lending to, um, but it's it's firms like those. Uh, and we have a counterparty risk assessment framework and, and an entire team that manages those relationships and monitors the financials and issues margin calls and requires different levels of collateralization depending on who's borrowing from us. And similar to the USD lending that, we've do, that we do, uh, we've never had a loss, we've never had a late payment. Um, we're probably, you know, more conservative. You've never than had we, a late payment from any of your institutional clients on the borrowing side, or or our retail clients on the USD oh. side. Um, I mean, most of the time we're we're holding more money from the borrower than we've actually lent them. So, what better incentive could there be to you know make your payments on time <laughs> and, and and in general just you know pay, pay back? Um, so. It's uh, it's something we're going to be you know expanding further. You know, I think over time, as you add diversification to these types of lending pools, specifically on the crypto side, like right now, it's primarily institutional trading and institutional investing in terms of who we're facing when we lend crypto. Um, as you see more adoption and more utility created with crypto assets, uh, we could start to lend to. You know, different types of, of businesses, uh, whether that's ATM companies or remittance businesses, anything that's using uh, cryptocurrency and crypto rails as their kind of primary method of transacting. And as a result, they have a balance sheet need for it, could be a potential borrower. Um, to date, these transactions have been you know large, eight, nine figures. And so we haven't really gone down into that corporate segment of the market. But over time, we certainly will. You mentioned uh, before we turned on the mics that there are one, two, three phases that you're looking at for this company. Yeah, the three phases of BlockFi. Three phases of BlockFi. I think I might write a blog post about it because I've been saying it so much recently. But yeah, so the three phases are... Walk us through it. Yeah, so they're, they're related to um, you know kind of how big our addressable market is uh, and also what products we're delivering. So we think of what we have today as being in phase one and we're about to migrate into phase two. And in phase one, we have products that are only relevant to someone who already owns... Bitcoin or another crypto asset that's supported on BlockFi's platform. So you have the ability to borrow against it, you have the ability to earn interest on it. Um, in phase two, we're going to expand our addressable market to include people who don't own cryptocurrency yet and also offer some more functionality to the clients that are already on our platform and already owned cryptocurrency. And we're going to launch the ability to buy and sell. Uh, and we think we'll do that in a somewhat novel way with a bit more of a wealth management or robo-advisor feel versus a pure exchange where it's oriented around trading. And then we're going to launch a crypto rewards credit card. So a normal you know, credit card, hopefully we can replace your Chase Sapphire or your you know, city cash back card with something that earns you 1.5% cash back in Bitcoin. Um, and we're really excited to market that product because we think there's a lot of fun stuff you could do with it that could attract uh, people who have who have been on the margin. I mean, you're seeing this theme with companies like Lolly, where if you can replace earning crypto for you know earning dollars in a way that's super low risk for the user, then that's a great mechanism 
to get someone from not owning any Bitcoin into owning some Bitcoin. And you know, credit cards is is such a, a logical place to do that. And you've seen a lot of things in the crypto space with debit cards, um, which I think haven't seen great adoption because the transaction fees are really high and people don't actually want to spend their Bitcoin. That haven't been ironed out. Yeah, and you don't want to spend your Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. I, don't want to, I don't want to spend my Bitcoin. Um, so we think a credit card will be really good at that. And, and that's basically phase two. And then we think there's also going to be this phase three where today the majority of our clients are US-based. Um, and we will you know, be more focused on international expansion. We'll target a few specific markets, translate our website. Um, and then we think there'll be some interesting data plays. Uh, and the data plays will come, one, from just the... Uh, you know, lending and debt and credit markets that we're operating in. So, for example, helping to create or creating a Bitcoin interest rate curve. Um, and the other data opportunity that we think we'll see over time with increased adoption, especially internationally, is the ability to help with credit scoring in uh, markets where you know they don't have like a FICO credit scoring system and large credit reporting agencies like we do in the U.S. So that's the trajectory that we're on. We've released uh, we've released a new product on pretty much a six month. Cadence uh, since uh, securing that last round of funding, um, and and hopefully we'll we'll stay on that cadence. So we'll have uh, some buy sell functionality launching before the end of this year, and then a, and then a credit card around the midway point of next year. So buy sell. How many coins will you be able to buy and sell? TBD. Uh, I think we're we're more focused on you know Bitcoin than anything else. Bitcoin is ninety percent of our of our current business. Um, we also do things today with Ether, Litecoin, and, and Zcash, uh, and, and GUSD, the Gemini dollar. Um, so we're definitely going to expand that, but but we have no intention of becoming like uh, you know a Binance or somewhere else where there's you know or Bitrex where they're they're really good at you know fifty plus uh, assets. I don't think we'll go that far down market. How do you balance these two different customer bases? You have institutional folks you're dealing with, retail folks that you're dealing with. Um, how do you serve both of them whilst keeping an eye on, on comp- competitors that really have focused in on on one of those customer segments? For like, a, for example, like a Genesis Global Trading is highly institutional. Um, how do you convince clients that you could pull away from them that you're just as institutionally savvy? Yeah, so um, I think it's. One part, you know, org structure, and then another part, just prioritization of resources. So we have uh, a team at BlockFi that's focused uh, exclusively on our institutional relationships, whether that's uh, the relationship management, the day-to-day trading, or uh, the risk assessment. Um, and then we have a, a separate team that's more oriented around uh, the retail or individual or small business side of things. Um, and right now, our product efforts, so like what our product team is is designing for our tech team to build, have been focused uh, primarily on the retail side. You know, enabling someone to come to our website and uh, get a loan without talking to someone unless they want to, and that whole process taking less than thirty minutes end to end. In the future, from a prioritization perspective, we'll be putting a bit more product and technical resources also towards the institutional side of things. Um, but the good news is. Uh, the core infrastructure that we've built is really applicable to both. Um, you know, making a U.S. dollar loan secured by Bitcoin isn't that different than making a Bitcoin loan secured by U.S. dollars in terms of what that core engine needs to do and what that core user wants to see when they're interacting with the platform. Um, and we also work with 
uh, you know, companies like Genesis. So um, in the traditional debt and credit markets, uh, there's concepts like the interbank lending rates, and and so something like that I think could emerge. Uh, in the cryptocurrency space as well, over time, where uh, there's some transactions and a certain level of of uh, trust and communication that exists between some of the larger providers of these types of um, products and services in the crypto market, uh, and then you know you're ultimately competing for clients sometimes, uh, but a lot of clients are actually incentivized to have relationships with multiple counterparties yeah. so that they don't spread that risk ground. They spread the risk ground as well. On the, okay. on the, on the Rate curve are the the uh, all the different types of derivative products that are coming out. Is that going to help set that curve? Like, how would you actually back into the curve? Uh, the the challenging part about it right now is is term. Um, so the crypto markets are obviously you know very volatile. Um, a lot of the uh, you know perpetual swap type products adjust their their rates on a eight hour or twelve hour or six hour basis. Um, so that that doesn't really help you to build a curve that goes out three months or six months or or one year because if you're actually trying to trade that and and you know a one year interest rate curve moves around from contango to backwardation in a 24 hour period like that is contango. that's crazy it makes it makes people who participate in traditional markets like their their mind explodes you know what do you mean um, and so I think uh, those platforms are in a really good position to help. Build that market. Uh, there was an announcement uh, somewhat recently from Arthur Hayes and, and Bitmex that they're considering or going to start issuing uh, no coupon bonds mm-hmm. with a little bit of term. They said they were looking at That's it. Interesting. Yeah. They were looking at it. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of different ways that this could be created. You know, the bond market is one. If you use gold as an analogy, there used to be before interest rates went to zero this concept of uh, of the the Gold forward rate. I think it was GoFo or something like that. Is the the gold offered forward rate or something? And it um it was around for quite a quite a while. And then when interest rates in the U.S. went to zero, it kind of stopped existing because it was built off of a futures interest rate curve. Um, but I, I think you'll start to see something like that get get built for Bitcoin as well. So let's take a step back and kind of look at how BlockFi is is examining getting into this corner of the market, right? Um, it sounds somewhat unusual for a retail or what people might know or the listeners uh, who might know your firm through the retail lending portion of the business might be confused about you guys getting involved in, in what could be impactful to derivatives markets. So for those folks, let's sort of walk them through how you're approaching that side of the business. We're, we're not focused on that right now. So we think of that as something that falls into to phase three for us, which we're at least a year away from. Um, and it, it could be that uh, in the interim, other market participants uh, take this effort a lot farther than than we have. So you know, one thing we've um, uh, we've tried to participate in is has been the efforts that Masari is doing around building some of these interest rate indexes, and we're basically a willing participant uh, for anyone who says we want to build a rate curve or we want to start to kind of aggregate some of this data. So I think right now that's the extent of our mm-hmm. of our efforts. Uh, we're, we basically raise our hand and say, you know, if you need some help, we'll, we'll give you some data points, we'll give you our perspective. Um, I think it's most likely that we end up being a component of some type of index anyways. And leading the charge, precisely. Uh, how do you you, you mentioned before we started that you draw a lot of your inspiration from block from excuse me from SoFi right you have the Phi at the end but there's also other 
things that you've you've uh, you early know. investor. Uh, you, you said you know people that work there. You're, you're, you're yeah, close I mean, with the team. Is that is that the traditional markets parallel you would make? For your firm, if you were explaining it to someone in an elevator pitch, or it is, and we get the question all the time of, okay, so you're a bank, and it's like, no, we're a fintech company. There are a lot of fintech companies like SoFi. We we fall back on that example because you know Flory and I come from an, the online lending industry most recently, and SoFi was the company that built the most inter, enterprise value and was really you know the market leader to emerge from that space. And what they did that was really smart is they started with a you know a high value customer segment, which initially was people who graduated from Ivy League schools, and they said we'll f- we'll refinance your student loans at a better rate than anyone else. And then they expanded to include non-Ivy League schools, but still with just the student loan refi product. And then after they had built up a, a really large uh, you know, base of customers, they started expanding their product into initially mortgages and then into wealth management. They're about to add the ability to hold crypto uh, into their wealth management platform. And they're also either already launched or are launching soon a hybrid checking savings account. Um, so I think one of the big learnings from other fintech companies is that there's there's a lot of IP for financial services built up in that relationship that you have with your customer. And if you can do a good job of messaging what your company is about, if you can do a good job of creating products that, you know, add value and are super easy to use and are, you know, somewhat differentiated from what else is out there in the market, and then if you can sell more than one product to the same customer, all of your marketing economics get better, your ROI and LTV economics get better, and you have a stickier relationship with that client. And if that can be at the core of what you're building, that objective, your incentives are really well aligned with your client base. And then if you take it back to the you know crypto market, it's it's in a lot of ways it's the polar opposite of DeFi, which is interesting. You know, DeFi, it's like we don't want to know who you who you are. We don't have any of your data, and they have this advantage of. Being able to take a customer from anywhere in the world and not ha- and not having that roadblock, right? Like I don't need your ID. And every customer on our platform, we have oh, to you're get on a financial ID. sanctions list. Here, come on, have yeah. a loan. And you know, it's I think we need both. I think it's I think it's potentially you know revolutionary and game changing that we now have that ability. Also, it's just not the DNA of BlockFi. We think of um, you know each client relationship as being really important. Uh, we want to know who that client is. We want to know uh, what activity they're doing on their platform, what their birthday is. You know, maybe we start sending people a bottle of wine on their birthday. I don't know. We haven't done that yet, but um, those are the types of things that create that. If you do. I'm affinity. opening up an account tomorrow. You gave me this example when we first met. That SoFi. I didn't know this, but when you would sign up, they would send you a bottle of olive oil or wine or something along those lines. And like that high touch customer relationship, I think is insanely valuable for. For uh, lending and fintech in general, yeah, and all we've done so far is T-shirts, but I think we're going to be able to up our game soon. <laughs> well, and given Bitcoin, it's up now, hundred percent. Has that changed anything? The run-up in terms of you deposits, know, or it, it certainly makes the day-to-day a lot easier when you you know go to bed at night and then wake up in the morning and all of your clients are fifteen percent richer overnight, uh, and you have you know. Uh, more media attention, um, uh, greater interest in the sector, and and frankly, you feel a little bit validated. You know, mm-hmm. saying in the summer of 2017 that we were going to lend money 
secured by the value of someone's Bitcoin raised a lot of eyebrows and people thought it was going to be super risky and we were destined to just blow up and lose a lot of money. We also said we weren't going to raise funds uh, via an ICO, which a lot of investors that we talked to, you know, that was the middle of the ICO boom. They're like, oh, you're a you're an idiot. Like, why are you not raising money via an ICO? We're like, well, we don't think it adds any value to the customer relationship and we're building a long-term business. And they're like, yeah, cool, see you later. Like, I don't want to talk I'm about sure that. I'm sure you could have figured something out. I mean, Do you still get that? Like, what makes you different than Celsius or, or Nexo or these other token-based lending platforms? Because we get it on our end and it, I just think you can Do you see any it. value in the token in, in those business models? Um. I think it's it's really, really hard to create value in the token in that type of business model. I think there will be exceptions to the rule, like Binance and others. Um, but an exchange is so much more transactional and can generate such a larger amount of quick revenue versus a lending business where you're where you're taking payments over time. Um, and so I, I think it's really I think it's really hard. I don't think the performance of the lending ICO sector tokens has has Pays been interest in the token. Well, and that's just confusing. I mean, from a user experience perspective, I remember thinking like, okay, you want me to you want me to buy your token with my money so that I can borrow money from you secured by my Bitcoin and then pay you a lower interest rate because I already bought your token. Like somewhere in there, you're just slapping your head, going, "This doesn't make any sense." I feel like I'm getting bamboozled. Like <laughs> you're giving me a loan, just it's secured by my Bitcoin. Just you know, let me give you the Bitcoin, and then you give me the loan. Um, but yeah, I mean, we get we get the question a lot. I, I think at the end of the day, if people have good intentions, they're not doing a scam. I think that um, all development in the sector is is probably a net positive. It's still very early, and we need as many smart people working on you know good concepts as possible. But how do you um, explain the value prop of your firm relative to your competitors? Or to DeFi? I know you mentioned that earlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, everything in financial services usually starts from a rates perspective, especially when it comes to lending. So we, you know, we focus on always understanding where other rates are in the market, and uh, you know, we we strive to always have have the best rates. Um, secondarily, I think uh, for DeFi, there's a lot of structural things that we do. Differently, um, so you know, on Friday when we were thinking of recording this podcast, the market looked one way, and it's gone down quite a bit over the weekend. And there's been some, uh, you know, talk about liquidations on different DeFi platforms, and um, all of the DeFi platforms, as far as I'm aware, charge a liquidation penalty partially to incentivize liquidity showing up on their platform. It's high; it's like five to thirteen percent at times. Yeah, and we, you know, we we would never do that. We've we have had to sell collateral in a couple of instances, primarily in November of uh, of 2018, um, but. We do a couple of things. One, we have a lot of notifications. We have a tighter uh, maximum LTV ratio than all of the DeFi platforms, which I think is partially driven by the fact that we can just build access to liquidity. We don't need to make liquidity come to us. Tighter being lower. Yeah, so tighter meaning. Yeah, like if you're, I think the max collateralization uh, is like 140%. Or 130% on a lot of the DeFi platforms, and we're 120, 110. Um, and then we still offer flexibility uh, there. For example, if um, if a transaction happens that someone want, wants to unwind, and depending on which way the market went, there's a couple different ways you could unwind it and kind of restore their position. Well, we do that. Um, 
And so, you know, it's just it's just a it's just a different approach. Um, lower fees, tighter ratios. We've got access to more liquidity because we can go through KYC and, and AML onboarding with uh, an institutional OTC desk or an institutional market maker, which and so that. which require that. And so we're not just looking at decentralized exchanges for our liquidity when we need it, or um, you know, needing to incentivize liquidity to come to us. We can go get it. We can have access to institutional liquidity, um, and we can also do you know various types of. Uh, Hedging, which sometimes makes sense and sometimes don't, depending on which way the futures markets or derivatives markets are going. For example, interesting. Something that all the a lot of the exchanges are looking at, whether it's Binance has their platform coming online. I think five percent or twenty percent margin. Bitfinex has a margin platform that they're working on. Even Coinbase here in the U.S. is looking at margin. How, whether it's helping exchanges offer that product or that sort of platform to their users. How does BlockFi fit into that? How can you sort of, or how can exchanges or other um, crypto companies leverage BlockFi to offer new services to their clients? So we we've spent uh, we we've spent a lot of time um, working on partnerships. We've announced quite a few big ones just in in recent memory. We partnered with uh, Casa, Luno, Delphi Digital. Um, no major exchange partnerships uh, to to announce um, as of yet. The exchange one is particularly interesting. So we we think we think partnerships are important. We think it's great to be able to offer uh, users on one platform access to more services in that same environment that they're used to interacting with. Um, with exchanges, it depends on how they want to design their system. So uh, Bitfinex on the lending side has been largely peer to peer, whereas Binance. Um, I don't think is a is a peer to peer setup, um, and other exchanges, depending on how they're regulated, may not be able to offer lending directly. Um, also, all of the exchange lending that's taken place to date has been fundamentally different than uh, the majority of the lending that BlockFi does. In that, we're kind of offering liquidity access lines or portfolio lines of credit where you can borrow money off of the exchange environment or outside of the trading environment in your bank account. Um, but there are lots of things that you know we could do there, and that we're exploring doing there. Whether it's being a funder uh, in a in a peer to peer designed construct, which we haven't done yet, but we, we might consider doing over time, um, integrating to offer a wealth front portfolio line of credit type of experience on different crypto exchanges, um, or you know potentially helping to design and offer a, a margin trading program as well. Um, I've seen this in other industries. I've always worked in, you know, kind of high growth, new technology areas, and uh, partnering can be incredibly value accretive, not only to the companies but also the customers. So it's something we're a big believer in. Is that hard to integrate via like a tech solution into someone else's platform, hook in, and, and then start issuing credit? Is that something that's easy to pull off? Like, what, what's kind of the roadblock there? Um, the answer is it depends on, wh- on what kind of integration you want to uh, you want to do. Um, so to, to give two examples, um, there's you know the concept of just like a marketing partnership where I'll write about you, you write about us. We have some information and we have links that maybe offer you know discounted access to services from the other partner. That's pretty easy. Um, that's what we have going on with Casa right now. Exactly. Um, th- that's pretty easy to to set up. And then there's uh, you know the other end of the spectrum where 
there's a you know, portfolio line of credit program powered by a bank integrated into the Wealthfront dashboard where you can access it by you know clicking two or three times and signing a document and then it's done. You now have a line of credit powered by this bank. That's a different level of integration and then you know actually powering a margin trading uh, function would be an even an even deeper level of, of integration. Um, Do you see that on the horizon for this year? Or? I'd say it's a coin flip. 50-50? Yeah. That'd be pretty interesting. I think that's just a, like a natural pat, like somewhere in phase two, phase three maybe. I don't know. Is that phase two for you? It's phase 2.5. 2.5? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's coming. Okay. Interesting. Very, very suspicious. <laughs> You hear you heard it here first on the scoop. Um, tell us a little bit about your background for for listeners who might not be familiar with Mr. Zach Prince. You you you've been in tech for a while. You're from Texas. Yeah, I grew Texan up in tech. Yeah, we were listening to some Texas country music before we started That's recording. Right. I uh, grew up in Texas. I was a I was a nationally ranked um, tennis player on like the junior circuit, and then. Uh, put myself through. Did you watch the match school. this weekend? The best. I mean, it's like the longest Wimbledon ever. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah, I was yelling at the TV. You know, I, I was rooting Do you for think Federer. Federer. Ever wins again at that stage? I don't know. It's tough. I mean, he's he's getting up there. He almost pulled it off. Yeah, he it. had two match points. It's like, <laughs> come on. Um, See, so yeah, I grew up playing tennis. Uh, I was a you know, kind of pseudo online professional poker player throughout throughout college, uh, which enabled me to come out of school with no debt, which was nice, but also um, crippling gambling problem. Yeah, also 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 enabled like the flourishing of of some immaturity. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. It was Who college. Knocked out Romano. It was college. Yeah, I want to talk to him about that. Um, and then I graduated in May of 2009. I always thought I would work in, in finance, but that wasn't the best time to be looking for a, a job in the financial industry. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I ended up uh, getting a job at this ad tech startup called AdMeld here in New York City. And AdMeld was one of the pioneers of like online advertising exchanges. So uh, when the world was moving from you know, Pepsi calling the New York Times and saying, we'll buy 5,000 ads for this price. And they, they transacted with each other into a world where um, advertisers could target specific users rather than just a, a specific website. And there was a, a concept of bidding against other advertisers for these impressions. AdMeld was one of the first um, exchanges. Uh, we did really well. Um, I was there for about three years. I kind of climbed through the organizational ranks, and then we were acquired by Google. Uh, at the time, it was like the sixth largest Google acquisition, and now it's not even top twenty-five. But it was a little, it was a little over four hundred million. Um, then I would, then I started the North American entity of another ad tech company called Sociomantic, uh, that was based in Germany. Um, here, after staying at Google for less than a year. Uh, and then I moved into online lending. So more relevantly for BlockFi, I did two different stints at online lending companies. One, uh, Orchard, which was basically a middleware layer for the online lending industry. We aggregated data and provided technology solutions to institutional investors that wanted to buy loans or lend to the lending clubs and SoFi's and Prospers of the world. Um, I ran business development there for like three years and then... Uh, uh, while I was there, I started writing a, a blog on the side about fintech. Um, 
because I became like the guy out of my friend group who people would say, you know, should I invest in commercial real estate loans online? Should I do this robo advisor stuff? Um, and I knew all of these companies, and and oftentimes, you know, I had set up a partnership with them at Orchard. Um, so I just started writing it all down so that I could send people a link instead of uh, talking about it over and over again. And that's what led me to Bitcoin. And I was working on that blog. I found Coinbase, found Bitcoin in 2014, bought some, sold it after it doubled, and then you know bought back in at a higher price in 2015. Uh, and then in 2016, I left Orchard and started working at a consumer lending business that um, basically offered uh, point of sale financing to online retailers for consumers that had uh, bad credit scores or a thin credit file because they're young or international. And uh, that it's company, like a firm. it's exactly like a firm. Our entire sales pitch was, um, how many declines do you get from a firm every month? And somebody would say, oh, it's about uh, 50,000. And we'd say, well, we can approve 75% of those. Um, uh, and then that was going really, really well. Uh, but the crypto market you know, started to draw an increasing amount of my attention. I was talking about it at home and my wife is like, you're talking about this too much. Go find some other people to talk with it about. Like, you need to start going to meetups or something. And so I did. Um, and I just got really excited, like early 2017, and, and uh, decided that I had to find a way to, you know, build in this industry. And then after talking with Flory about it, we just decided to start a company. What are some of the, if you look back at your time in traditional online lending, uh, versus BlockFi. We, before we hopped on, we were we were talking about the difficulties of just securing real estate or securing uh, you know different services that any business would, any lending business would, at a higher cost. But what what are the biggest differences between the two from running the from the perspective of running the business itself? Yeah, well, I think um, in the in the traditional online lending industry, you were definitely facing. Uh, you know, concern or reservations from people in the early days of that space because you weren't a bank um, and you were doing everything with technology. And what did that mean? And how could you how could you lend as safely as you could with all of your traditional processes and, and procedures um, through a website, making a decision in you know in a loan in less than five minutes or less than ten minutes? Like how could that work? Um, but the core product was a product that had existed forever. Like you were making consumer loans or real estate loans. I mean, this was all stuff that was very well defined and had long track records in in debt capital markets. Um, it was just that the banks had had stopped being as active uh, in a lot of those sectors. Um, what's different in cryptocurrency is that you have all of those same considerations that online lending or other fintech companies go through in terms of the need for compliance, in terms of the need to raise different. Types of capital versus just like a, a you know software type startup, um, and and needing you know really kind of specialized uh, employees um, that that largely get that experience from banks or traditional financial institutions on your team to build these things. What's different is that you know cryptocurrency one I think has a much larger addressable market. So if you're setting up a you know an online consumer lender. Uh, in the U.S., it's saturated. You have one; it's saturated. Two, your addressable market is a lot smaller. Three, the only thing that's really unique about that is that you're doing it on the internet instead of through a bank branch. Um, whereas with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, you've got global scale built in at the foundational level. You have something that could truly disrupt uh, 
you know, parts of the financial structure that that have existed, um, you know, for hundreds of years in modern times or whatever. Uh, and the regulation is a lot less clear. Yeah, it's a it's a lot less clear, and it's it's nice. a lot more of a moving target. Like the regulatory questions were figured out in online lending. There's basically a question of, you know, do some of the peer to peer lenders need to be broker dealers or not? Uh, that was decided. Lending Club and Prosper, you know, had a broker dealer arm, so they were the only ones that could sell the loans to retail, and then everybody else didn't sell any loans to retail unless it was accredited only. Um, but in crypto, I think there's still, I mean, there's questions about what are some of these assets, securities or not. Um, what does that mean for your business? Uh, you know, we've, we've been, uh, we were a follower, not a leader in terms of supporting any new crypto asset. We, we looked to, you know, larger, more established companies. But that would have, you make that, that much more money if you just woke up tomorrow and decided to support Fifty more. There's also the risks of all that and the compliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and capital, and also for for the type of stuff that we're doing. I mean, look at what happened on uh, Poloniex with you know they were doing they were doing margin lending with clams, and they ended <laughs> up having to socialize a loss yes. as a result. And so, uh, you know, the biggest inputs to our risk models are liquidity and volatility. And so, as we go down the you know the market cap stack, liquidity goes down as well. And so, these are riskier assets, and and we approach everything from a you know risk management first view. So, for those reasons, and just you know our belief that there isn't that much more business to gain versus just supporting you know Bitcoin and Ether, um, it just hasn't been a priority. You mentioned the. The global scale aspect of of being able to offer these types of loans, and we talked about this before as well. The regulatory arbitrage of being able to provide funding into all these different regions without having to have a presence there um, is that something you guys think about and talk about a lot? And are there considerations also of like how the rate environments are in some of these regions, and, and whether that makes the product more attractive for consumers? Yeah, a ton. I mean, uh, to answer the first question about rate environment, I mean, for someone in for example, a Latin American uh, country might be worthwhile to see, talk about how they derive the rate before we get into how that. we derive the rate. Um, so, how we derive the rate when we're lending USD is largely a, a function of our cost of capital, which is driven by um, institutional relationships that we have. Uh, for example, the one we announced when I was pinging you. For the exclusive with Galaxy Digital, where we have a fifty million dollar pool of committed capital from Galaxy that can be used that can be used to finance our loans, and um, that has a that has a cost of capital associated with it. So they're expecting a certain rate of return, and then we have other relationships like that one. Um, and so you know, kind of the blended cost there is the largest input to what we're charging people to borrow from BlockFi. And Hopefully, yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> um, and then the same thing on the you know on the interest account or or crypto lending side of things. There's a rate that we'll pay to depositors, and there's a rate that we charge when we're lending it out. And and you know our objective is to is for that to be a positive spread. And that's how we make money. Um, the the interesting rate dynamics globally are if you're in a country, for example, LATAM, where um, inflation is high as a result. Uh, the cost of borrowing is high. Uh, credit availability is low for consumers. Um, to you know, use an asset like Bitcoin as a mechanism to get the same cost of funding uh, 
denominated in dollars, uh, you know, f- that someone in a in a you know in the U.S. could get is really really powerful. And then um, the other on the other end of the spectrum in Europe or Japan or more uh, developed economies, rates. yeah, exactly, that have negative you know a negative yield environment uh, to be able to earn interest on an asset, you know. Uh, on the same, on the same, pl- on the same like, playing what? field. You get money on on on, on my investment. This is insane. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, two percent uh, interest is something to really high five about in Japan. Um, and so, you know, having something that you can price based on U.S. dynamics, but then deliver uh, globally um, is really powerful. And then on the regulatory arbitrage point. If you wanted to set up a, uh, a consumer lending business in, in Brazil, for example, um, you would need to uh, secure uh, capital, um, probably denominated in reals. You would need to um, get whatever license exists or may not exist for a company to be able to offer loans in that market. And then you would need to have local banking and payment processing partners that enabled you to deliver the money and collect payments back. Um, but because we're using blockchain rails, assuming we're comfortable with the risk of, of you know conducting that regulatory arbitrage um, in any of these markets, we can just turn on our, our KYC requirements uh, under U.S. regs um, and our KYC data providers uh, support international consumers. Uh, there's actually nothing um, from a U.S. Uh, regulatory perspective that would prevent you from offering a financial product to a citizen of Venezuela. They're not, they're actually not sanctioned. People that work for the government are sanctioned, um, and it might be really hard to get uh, good identity verification for someone from Venezuela. Uh, but from a U.S. perspective, you know th- that's okay. Uh, and then in terms of those you know local partners for banking or payment processing, well, you don't actually need them because you're using blockchain. Uh, based assets, they send you Bitcoin. You send them a stablecoin, or the other way around. I mean, that's um, it's incredibly powerful. I think I think that the global accessibility uh, component um, and the level of equality that you could potentially derive from that in terms of global market participants having access to to a unified market is really really powerful and something that you know in the space we should we should talk about more because I think that's a more Fun thing for potential new participants to hang their hat on. Then, uh, you know, macroeconomics are shaky. The world's going to blow up. You should own Bitcoin. I'm like, nah. Let's talk about the good stuff. <laughs> let's talk about the you know the feel good things. I think that's going to be more of a of an onboarding force than than the scary things. Because in my experience, if I if I talk about the scary stuff, people like shut down. They're like, I don't want to hear that, man. That sounds really scary. <laughs> let's let's not go down that path. You know. Two points on that front, I guess. Uh, the first thing is, so you've seen firsthand blockchain-based lending, at least from crypto standpoint. Are there other asset classes uh, that you could see this technology kind of fusing into? I know Matt, Mike Cagney, ex-SoFi CEO, uh, his company Figure does HELOC loans, uh, home equity lines of credit. Um, does this kind of just speak to the potential of that type of product and others? Um, I, I think they're a little bit different. So, like you know, the, the way BlockFi is using blockchain is primarily to support these new unique assets, whether it's Bitcoin or or stable coins. Um, whereas uh, Figure is is using blockchain as a technology stack, um, and 
I think that could work, but I still struggle, and this is probably just because I'm not a technologist, but I don't know what the benefit is of using a blockchain versus just getting all of the different data components in a certain you know workflow to use the same system. Uh, I don't know what the benefit of the blockchain is. And so when I think about it for lending, it's like, okay, I just need the loan originator, uh, the loan servicer, um, the customer service team who's always dealing with you know exceptions to to certain you know payment behaviors, um, the uh, the capital markets uh, like you know warehouse facility, and then also the ratings agencies uh, and, and the reporting um, component of securitizations. I just need all of them to record their data in the same place. Yeah. That could be Salesforce, right? Like, just yeah. put it all in yeah, the same exactly. place and have all of them trust it that that the other person in uh, that workflow chain is not lying. Um, I don't know that blockchain actually helps with that. Uh, if it's if it's a, if it's a buzzword that enables you to hold people's feet to the fire and say no 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 we're putting this on the blockchain now so you have to do it Give me we're a all doing dollars. this we're all doing this then then that's great um, but I don't think I don't think the core technology is is that differentiated for that use case versus you know a, a database from Oracle and then the second was a follow up to your feel good story one of the first things that jumped out to me when I was reading the Libra white paper. Um, was how they're going to really look to have businesses and other people come on and, and build services on top of that stack, should it come to be. Um, and one of the first companies that jumped out in my mind was BlockFi and potentially looking to offer Libra-denominated loans globally. Would that be something that would be of interest to, to your firm? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's interesting to us. I think it's uh, it, it's probably really interesting to Libra too, or or frankly anyone that's you know, launching a new asset, even if it was a you know stable coin backed by a different reserve currency, to have a financial service provider, you know, offer these types of products and services on it. Um, I'm so curious to see what happens to Libra from a regulatory perspective. I mean, also, <laughs> well, I'll let you know. Um, yeah, heaven Fran- to DC. Frank had a Frank had a scoop over the weekend. I read, you know, I read the whole thing. Uh, Thank you. I, I don't. I don't think Keep it's big un- tech out of finance act. I don't think it's unlikely for that to pass. I mean, you've got the no. ba- you've got the banking lobby. You've got the regulators who are kind no. of annoyed with big tech, anyways. They're already so powerful. Um, I mean, selfishly, I'm I'm all for them. Uh, you know, getting bigger because I have a lot of exposure in my you know Robinhood account or whatever. But uh, <laughs> full disclosure, I, I just I just don't I just don't I don't know how you, you get that. You know, approved, and and you actually have Globally, the ability to like launch it. Buys in. Yeah, I there's mean, a lot of. I mean, this 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 is the most unifying force on the hill right now. Just this pure hatred and skepticism. Oh, completely. Side. It's so easy. It's so easy for them so right? to just be like, nah. We're gonna say no to this, right? Like, I don't care if I hate you, and we're so like oh, no, polar opposite of the aisle. It's it's you so know. you so I Facebook's is always a good place to end any any conversation, especially these days. And with the hearings coming up, what do you see happening? Um, do you see the government just coming in and saying this isn't this isn't going to go? For me, I, I I don't think they're going to be able to launch Libra in the way that they initially conceived it. Maybe they'll be able to launch some version of it. Maybe not. What um, changes do you think will have to be made? I mean, Interestingly enough, the know. thing that is communicated to me by folks on the Hill is 
an annoyance that it's based in Geneva, the association itself, um, for reasons of why is innovation going overseas? Well, every more Republican side. To every 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 system. Every big every big country is going to say no 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 no. Just tokenize the dollar or tokenize the euro. Like you want to do this thing, uh, do it with just our currency. Like you're not the IMF, you're Facebook um, or Calibra. But but what I think is what I think is great and way more relevant for BlockFi is that um, this is going to this is sparking conversations about Bitcoin that. So highlight what's unique about Bitcoin that you know you've got that that you even guy, got Donald Trump to tweet about it. Donald Trump tweeted about it. you got that guy from CNBC and you're like Joe watching Squawk, you're yeah. watching him in real time go through the five stages of becoming a Bitcoin maximalist and like that's so great to see. Yeah. So it, it gives you such this this perfectly stark comparison to make. Versus Bitcoin, and I think a lot of people are going to go. All right, well now I kind of get the Bitcoin thing because because this sucks. <laughs> it's not controlled by Facebook, and it's not controlled by government, and it's not controlled by government. And so, so uh, it's made me, you know, more bullish than I ever have been on where we're headed. Where are we heading? Hundred thousand? Yeah, <laughs> Zach. Hundred thousand? No time frame? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> CEO of BlockFi. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having we me, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.